And I said, look, I have these two scripts I graduated with. Whatever you think you can do with them, have at it. I mean, you send it around. He sent it around. I, he got me an agent at William Morris at the time. And like a month later, the agent's like, hey, we're sending the script around. We just got Ridley Scott on. He's going to he's gonna direct the movie. It's Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, I, I was literally selling insurance with my dad. He, he was calling me to say, hey, you got to move to LA. This thing's about to sell. That is Brad Inglesby, the creator of Mayor of Easttown and also talking about the first time he wrote a script and it looked like Leo DiCaprio was going to start a script when he was in his 20s. That's fun. I want to talk about fighters in general after a big UFC weekend. We get a little soccer with Saruti too and uh, life advice. So let's go. It's the Ryan Russillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA final starts now and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older. 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler or visit rg help.com. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday. I'm still sleeping. I also like Ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side by side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. I'm going to start today's open with the UFC result from Saturday. Dustin Poirier taking out Conor McGregor. It was a doctor stoppage as McGregor is screaming um, from inside the octagon. Now, if you saw the fight, I thought the first couple of minutes, McGregor looked crisp. Uh, he got some great kicks in. He was standing up at Poirier, which is what he wants to do. But Poirier at this point is a superior fighter. And honestly, even through McGregor's incredible run uh, from previous years, if you could find a way to get him on the ground, um, that was going to be a weakness for him. But it was an absurd scene, and I was entertained by it. I'll admit, as absurd as it was, I was entertained, and I'll probably buy the next McGregor fight, which will happen because I don't understand why we're in this rush. Anytime a fighter has a bad result, we're like, oh, that could be the end. And I'll get to that a little bit later, too. But you know, Poirier beats him up on the ground. They actually get free. It looks like McGregor's going to get up. They go to face off. There's only seconds left as they're in their stand-up, and then McGregor backpedals and breaks his leg, and then there was this argument about whether or not there was a check on a kick, and McGregor's like, there was no check! And he's just screaming there with a bloody ear and a broken leg as Poirier just handled himself perfectly. I think there were a lot of Dustin Poirier fans, even guys that were rooting for McGregor that respected and loved the way Poirier carried himself after the fight, after the result, as McGregor's just sitting there watching the whole thing. Now, McGregor's made the relationship for his fans more complicated over the years, depending on the litany of things that you believe and, and what, you know, what you believe that's out there, whether it's the cell phone incident in Miami, punching an old guy for refusing a shot of whiskey 
in Ireland. And then, of course, there was a sexual assault charge against him, which then ended up being dropped because of a lack of investigation. So a lot of times with any of this stuff, again, if you keep getting into trouble, then it's like maybe you're telling us something about you. Uh, But I'm not defending him. I'm not defending him. I just I will tell you more often than not, if you ever hear me when I don't really know, I don't feel safe in assuming one way or the other unless there's overwhelming evidence that we can all read and rely on. But I have very little, or I would say low expectations for fighters in general as people, and even with Conor McGregor at this point. I mean, this is a very convenient relationship. I pay you to entertain me. You take the cash, and I'm entertained. That's what it is. I don't know if that makes me a bad guy, but I think it makes me a more realistic guy. Uh, I have low expectations for a lot of people, certainly those consumed through the public eye. So when somebody gets caught up in something, uh, and I'm not talking of the more serious things, but just, you know, a guy, all of a sudden we find out he cheats on his wife and you're like, oh my gosh, we're like, wait a minute, what? A guy in power cheated on his wife who had all sorts of options all the time? No way. That never happens. So I just kind of roll my eyes, at least to the reaction to it, because I myself never have high expectations for anyone unless I think or I truly do know that person. Um, And as I said, McGregor's made it more complicated for those that have rooted for him because he's carried himself like an ass in certain cases, because whatever the heel role he was going for, which he's played so well, he's definitely felt like he's crossed over and is saying some things. But I've also heard people say like, oh, I hate McGregor. I hate him. That's why I'm rooting for Floyd Mayweather. I'm like, well, okay, Um, that's as complicated, if not more so. So I'm not here to pick sides and all that kind of stuff. I'm just telling you the relationship is very simple. He fights. I watch the fights. And then when he's done fighting, even though I always enjoy it, I don't really think about him all that much more. Um, People are, because there's such a a lower approval rating of McGregor now, though, I think people are a little loose with the facts about who he's been as a fighter. He was four and two at one point, went to 19 and two, won multiple uh, weight classes, you know, multiple belts and multiple weight classes and doing things historically in the UFC that we've never really even seen done before. He loses to uh, Diaz, Nate Diaz. He beats him in the rematch. He beats Eddie Alvarez. And then he lost three of his four. Now, if you say four or five and include the Mayweather result, like, honestly, you're just kind of telling yourself that you hate him so much that that one to me doesn't even count as a loss. Losing to Khabib, who, and I'm just going to give you that awesome pronunciation there because I don't know that I ever quite nail it every single time I've done it over the last few years. Losing in that way, like everybody who kind of knew the UFC, even though you kind of held out hope for like, I don't know, McGregor can sometimes do the impossible. Um, that was just, it wasn't somebody he was going to beat. And the result of that was not all that surprising. And the aftermath was kind of disappointing on both ends because McGregor's just not going to admit anybody got the better of him, really. I mean, he might say it, but then he'll tell you how he's going to win the rematch. And Khabib had such a hard time with all the promotional and shit talk stuff that I think he took it so personally that you're like, no, this is how McGregor's going to sell this fight. And you should be happy about it. But nobody's going to be happy when their family's being insulted the way McGregor would do it. So obviously he's crossed that line into kind of this wrestling heel figure, which again, at least he's actually fighting, okay? (laughs) At least he's actually fighting. These guys are doing damage to each other as opposed to a wrestler. Sorry to the wrestling fans that are out there. Now, when I run through that record and then some of these more recent losses and then to lose to Poirier again, it's like, oh, this guy's done. He's not done. He's already said he's not going to be done. You can find 10 high profile media members all talking about McGregor being done. And what I think it becomes is kind of this contest to be the most dramatic person ever, as if you're Bob Costas reciting a eulogy during a national broadcast. It's like, did we see Conor McGregor leave the octagon for the last time ever in his career? 
I mean, have you ever met any fighters? Have you ever hung out with any guys that like really do this? And I would imagine most people haven't because I don't know what your deal is, right? And I'm not saying like I'm at cronk in my spare time, but when you look at McGregor's upbringing, and I think this happens a lot of times with athletes, and one of the rules in my job is to never be so personal that it's nasty, even though sometimes that's hard to resist. You don't want to call people stupid. You don't want to say this is a dumb person. But I think sometimes we would solve ourselves a lot of, or I would guess save ourselves a lot of time by saying like, look, sometimes the educational level of somebody in the background in general is a better indicator of where that person's head is at. I remember the first year that I had a job in sports, 2001, Trenton Thunder. I reference it all the time. And there's so many lessons that I learned in just that very short season and that, you know, some of these kids from other parts of the country that maybe don't have the educational background if, that you're lucky enough to experience, right? And you're thinking, this kid is right out of high school and all he's doing is playing baseball year round. He's just finding a different place to play baseball. So you're not going to be a season. So your perspective on things and life in general is going to catch somebody else who's been through college and had a few more years under their belt. You're going to catch them kind of off guard being like, all right, do I spend time dissecting this person or do I look at their background and go, okay, maybe I need to factor these things in more than instead of holding up someone to some standard that probably isn't even realistic. And I'm not talking about an intelligence thing here, McGregor. I'm basically telling you, this is a guy that grew up in not the best town, but not exactly like the worst town either in Ireland, who wanted to drop out of high school to become a plumber, was plumbing basically full time, quit plumbing, and then decided he was going to work on fighting because he was getting into scraps all the time because I guess some soccer stuff. And then his father was like, this is a loser move. And again, the, the son ends up being right. So there's a lot of entitlement there with McGregor, who was like, no one believed in me. And here I am. And I became the king of the world in the fight game and putting together nine figure deals. So it's hard to tell that guy he's ever wrong about anything. But if you look at that background, I think that's the key to some of the answers of like, well, what's why would he fight again? Well, he's going to fight again because he likes fighting. Sure, he can own property. Proper number 12. Sure, there's probably some entertainment deals out there for him. And honestly, I think if he fought some lesser fighters, he'd probably win a bunch. And I'm not saying if he beats a guy who's ranked 10th in his division that all of a sudden Conor McGregor is back, which is what will happen when he does win another fight in the UFC. And then everyone will ask if he's back. But as ridiculous as is he back to the standard that we're used to may seem impossible. It's just as ridiculous to suggest that he's done as if he's never going to fight again because the guy likes fighting. And again, that's the arrangement. I will pay to watch fighters fight because they're different. And look, I can keep buying the fights, but I know that I'll just make sure that my standards or my expectations are lessened both for the fighter and sometimes even the man. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now, by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it had been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call? Old school guy, probably should call. I was like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time. Said, do you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand. It's all in front of me, all done. I didn't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did, and 
even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. Uh, this is something I've been looking forward to for a while now. I've been a big fan of his work um, going back to Out of the Furnace, which we're going to talk about as well. But he's the creator, writer, and the man behind Mayor of Easttown, which everybody watched on HBO. It's Brad Inglesby. So I guess my my favorite part of of doing any of these interviews, especially with somebody as creative as yourself, is kind of the the origin of this whole deal. Because I know a lot about you. Uh, this is the first time we've ever talked. But I loved Out of the Furnace so much. And I... Don't know if people really got it. You know, we can talk a little bit about it, but I think for anyone that's seen that and then they watch Mayor, they go, okay, tonally, like there's there's some stuff here that makes sense. So give us your background, because I know I've read right out of school, you write this script, which again, it's one of my favorite movies of however many years. It's been out since 13. Um, give me the backstory to all that as you're sitting there working as what an amusement park thinking about being a writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny, right? So I wrote, um, it used to be called Low Dweller. It was a, so I went to AFI and at AFI, in order to graduate, you have to write two scripts. That's kind of like your grad, that's, that's the requirement. And so I wrote two scripts. Um, one of them was called Low Dweller, but I didn't really want to stay in LA, didn't really love living in LA at the time. So as soon as I graduated, I moved back to Philly, kind of where I grew up, was selling insurance with my dad. And uh, a buddy of mine, um, he called me up and he had just gotten a job. Uh, I think it was Focus Mike was at. Um, and he said, listen, I, I just got a job at Focus. I'm looking to produce some movies. Any scripts you have lying around, anything you wrote at AFI that you want me to give a read because I can actually get things made now. And I said, look, I have these two scripts I graduated with. Whatever you think you can do with them, have at it. I mean, if you think there's anything anything there. So he read Lodewell and was like, I, I, I don't think it's right, but I can get you an agent. And at that time, I was like, Dude, I, I don't have any, I don't have anybody in my corner. You know, send it around. He sent it around. I, he got me an agent at William Morris at the time, uh, and like a month later, the agent's like, "Hey, we're sending the script around. We just got Ridley Scott on. He's gonna he's gonna direct the movie. It's Leonardo DiCaprio." I mean, I, I was literally selling insurance with my dad. He he was calling me, saying, "Hey, you got to move to L.A. This thing's about to sell." And so it got sold. Obviously, Ridley wasn't going to direct it. Or ultimately, he, he went on to do other things. Leo went on to do other things. But the script was there. And Scott Cooper came on as a director and, and got an amazing cast and made that movie out of the furnace, which was a, it was based on the script Below Dweller. So just a stroke of luck that my friend Mike, he, he was able to get the script in the right hand. So it's good to have an advocate like that, you know? I think for anybody that's outside of the business and then what you're starting to get in, and it's certainly on the broadcasting side for me, like the first time I got an agent, I was like, this is awesome. This is unbelievable. Like, does he wire me totally. money when I need it? And, I, and they're like, no, <laughs> like, doesn't actually you do most of the work and then they help kind of facilitate the closing part of it. But it's on you to get all this stuff done. But I can't. So how old are you when you're selling insurance and guys in L.A. are saying, hey, DiCaprio's in for the lead? I think, Ryan, I was probably 26, maybe. You must have been losing your mind. What were your friends saying? <laughs> oh, it was, I mean, it was totally unbelievable. You know, it was, I remember like, yeah, the script ended up selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I remember my agent calling me the morning they were sending the script out. He's like, hey, we just got an offer for like 20 grand. I'm like, take the deal now, take it right now. Like just sign it. He's like, no, let's see if we can get a little bit more. And like, as the day went on, the price kept going up and up and up. So it was it was a surreal moment. And um, like I said, I just feel really lucky that I had those guys in my life. Mike, who was my friend, um, who was willing to send the script. And I think that's what writers need. I think, you know, you can do so much of the work on your own. You have to write a script. The words have to be on the page. But then you really do need an advocate who says, you know what, I believe in this script. 
script in this piece of material and I'm willing to go out and I'm willing to get it in the hands of the right people. And we all need those people in our life and any part of life really as friends or allies. But I think I, I, I've been really lucky to have a few of those people in my life. Okay. So it always blows my mind that when I look at the reviews and again, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. it, like Battle First doesn't do as well. Like on Rotten Tomatoes, I think it's in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Did yep. you think people had a hard time? Now, for those that haven't seen it, um, Christian Bale's the lead. Casey Affleck's his younger brother, yep. who's a war vet. They're in this, I kind of like to call like Vermont is almost the south of the north. PA yep. has a lot of that as well. The yep. south of the north is kind of like, these towns and these backwoods part of it where you're like, what the hell's going on in this town? And that's kind of where this is set. And, you know, I'm just trying to do a, a quick run through for people mm-hmm. that haven't seen it without ruining it either. Mm-hmm. But Christian Bale is like, you know, he's the hero of the movie and you're rooting for him the entire time. Casey Affleck's a total fuck up. But mm-hmm. Bale ends up in jail with, with this awful set of circumstances. Do you think that timeline from when Bale goes to jail and gets out that people were just they wanted their hands held a little bit more because there's no way. I don't understand why people couldn't appreciate this more, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a hard thing with movies. I think sometimes, you know, it's I think that movie in particular has a real it's it's kind of movie from the 70s. The vibe is really 70s. It's a character driven piece. It doesn't have a lot of explosions and there's not a lot of action in it. It's really a character study of this man and his brother, really. And at some shot at redemption and lost dreams and regrets. And I think sometimes audiences, I, you know, in the seventies, those movies were sort of expected and appreciated in a way that I think maybe audiences now have been trained to want more things to happen or, wow, this is kind of slow. Whereas I think European audiences have much more tolerance or higher tolerance for stories that don't necessarily have those that every 10 minutes, something doesn't have to jump out at you or scare you or move you in some way that you can just get lost in a character's life. And, and that can be meaningful in its own way. So I think, you know, maybe that is why it didn't get out there in a way, but I, I think it's, you know, it's strange, right? Like it's hard to predict what connects. I mean, we, you know, I was just editing, you know, at the end of editing mayor, you know, we had no idea. I mean, truly, that's the thing. You just never, ever know. And I think a part of that is you just get so close to something that you can't be um, objective about it in any way. And so it's always hard to predict what's going to hit and what's going to bomb and what audiences are going to respond to and what they're not going to respond to. And I think the only thing you can do as a as a creator, my experience is 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 that when something goes out in the world you just have to be happy with your contribution because it's a collaboration and every movie has a hundred moving parts and it, it can say written by me, but the production designer has to interpret what the scene. So, you know, it's, it's a bummer. The movie can do better, but I'm proud of it. And I think at the end of the day, if you can say, I'm really proud of something, that's, that's really the best you can do, you know? Yeah. You're, you're 10 minutes in. You're like, uh, Rosillo had me on and asked me why my movie didn't do better. This is awesome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have like two more things and then I want to get to mayor. Yep. Your first, and I know you have a couple other scripts, so I don't know the timeline of like all the different things you were working on at the time, but it's safe to say mm-hmm. like that's the big first one. How yep. weird was that for you being new to it to see how much gets changed from the words on the page to what actually gets out on the screen? What was that like? Yeah, I think that was a real, like, I would say that e- even my script, which was called The Low Dweller, it was different, was, it was a bit more of a... Um, a revenge movie, I would say. It was it was a movie really about the folly of revenge. This guy came home, he had done something terrible, comes home, tries to reconcile with his brother, his brother gets killed. So all that was all that was the same. And then he he tries to get revenge on the guys that did it and then realizes that in doing so kind of gets everyone around him killed. And so so I think 
Scott's version was was even more of a drama than my script, which my I, I would say my script was probably more of a thriller that there was a kind of journey and and it it, it probably had more of those actiony beats for better or worse. I think Scott did a beautiful job with the actors and the, and the movie has its own kind of um, of appeal and momentum and the acting is brilliant because Christian and obviously Casey are just amazing. Sam Shepard are just amazing. But I think that's, that's a, that's a part of the business that I had to learn early on. And I'm really glad I did. It's like, it's a collaborative art. You ha- if, if you want to write something that is going to be read or seen exactly as you've written it, then you should write a book or even a play. You probably have a better chance. And I say that to a lot of young writers who say, I'm not going to change this, or I don't want to change this. It's like, <laughs> guys, like then you better, like I would, I would leave just because you have to be flexible. And, and that's not to say you can't you know, be vigilant about the things you care about or the meaning of a story, but you have to be flexible. I mean, I can't tell you how many times on Mayor they were like, hey, this thing happens on a bridge. Well, oh, the bridge is closed down. We can't shoot in a bridge. Where's the scene going to take place? And you have to be able to move quickly and still get the emotion of that sequence out in a classroom or a basement. And you, so you have to be always flexible. And I think the key is like, what do I want to get out of the scene? What's the emotion I need to get? And how can I do that in different ways? And you have to be flexible. Okay. One last thing on it, because I have to yeah. ask Bale, because I think uh, Bale's probably my number one. I remember mm-hmm. even being a little kid and seeing him as a little kid in Empire of the Sun. I don't know how yeah. I ended up at the theater by myself watching that. <laughs> but I, I think it was because it was Spielberg. I was like, oh, you know, yes. Goonie or E.T. Yeah. I'm like, I'm yeah. in. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, this guy's insane. And even as a little yeah. kid, I could be like, this guy is unbelievable. Yeah. And I always think, too, and I know how kind of Hollywood works. So it wouldn't be like, be like, actually, Rosillo, he sucks to deal with. Yeah. I've heard yeah. that he's awesome and that he has yeah. this this rap because of that leaked audio when people were like, no, the guy he went against, nobody likes. And that's yes. why Bale lost his mind on him. Yeah. And he was sticking up for everybody. So if you just took that out of context, you think Christian yeah. Bale's the worst. And then other people yeah. I've talked to that have worked with him were like, no, no, he is incredible. So yeah. having said all of those things, although you can agree or disagree take it in any direction you want yeah. but i <laughs> no here, here's the thing i i didn't have a lot to like i wasn't on set for that one so i have no stories to share the only story i can tell you which i admire is that i ended up like i didn't go to set on out of the furnace at all so i didn't really get to meet with you know, bail at all actually it was all scott he was on set dealing with bear the only story i can share is i ended up working with a first assistant director who was on Out of the Furnace on another movie I did. And he said to me, you know, I I got sent to pick up um, Christian at the airport on Out of the Furnace. He was coming in, he was arriving to do the movie. You know, he's probably gonna be there for for a couple months. He comes down, he comes down the escalator in like a t-shirt and jeans and like a duffel bag. And, And this guy, Jamie's like, well, let's go get your luggage. He's like, nope, it's all here. He literally came in character. And was like, this is all I have. I'm going to be living out of this and let's go. And so that gives you a sense of his commitment to the acting and the performance. He, he literally came down like a t-shirt, a duffel bag, and that was all he was going to have. And he was ready to just jump into the character right away. So I admire that as a, as a creator, someone who has that level of commitment. So the scene when he gets out of jail. Yes. I want to know if it's, it's the writing, if it's the direction, or if it's bail. But it's, it's unbelievable like what a subtle scene it is is that he gets out and Casey Affleck's like, you know, how's it feel? How's it feel? And he's like, oh, it's all right. It's all right. I mean, yeah. he just got out of jail for this whole, after this horrible thing that was a total, yeah. you know, accident. Yeah. And he starts jogging as if he's running away from the jail. 
Yeah. And it's it's natural because you would think that's what that guy would do. Like, I'm running, yeah. I'm running. Yeah. And meanwhile, yeah. the car is there. And it's like, hey, do you want to drive? He's like, yeah, I want to drive. I want to yeah. drive. Was that yeah. bail or was that you or was I, that someone know, else? Funny. I, I think that, you know, I think that had changed. I think that was in Scott's version of the script. And my and I don't remember exactly, but my guess is it was probably bail that he was able to take a scene and trans, you know, and, and, and just get inside the character's head in such a way. And, and, and that's what you get from these amazing actors is that they can take something on the page and transform it into something that you could never have written. And I think that's, I mean, I don't remember the script. It was so long ago now, but my guess is it was probably Christian taking the intention of the scene in that case that Scott had written and making it into something that you could never have imagined just becomes better. And, and that's when you just have to stand back and go, I'm just going to watch and take this moment. And it's, it's just serendipity and I'm just going to use it. And we're going to put that in the edit, you know? That's why he's insane. Cause there's little oh, things yeah. you can tell it's him. Like when he punches Casey, when he catches him at the OTB in the middle of the day, which is usually a bad, <laughs> which is by the way, incredible. Like, okay, all right, best intro ever. This guy's in the OTB on a Tuesday afternoon. Um, <laughs> And he's like, how much, how much? And then he punches him real quick. And it's like natural, like no one saw it coming. And I go, yeah. I bet you Bale just went ahead and did that. All right. So uh, he, out of the furnace, amazing. go check it out. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to be efficient here with my time. Okay. Give me your timeline of, as a creative person here, the inception of an idea, Mayor of Easttown from whether it's general observation, obviously you understood the area, um, you know, whether it's close to where you're from, you know, I've, I've read all about the background. Yeah. You don't want to do it exactly the same town. You understand the area. Yeah. So you want to tell the story. How do you take your process of the inception of an idea to us getting to see it by week on HBO? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think that was, uh, so that was an idea I had, I think it was really desire to, I think, I think more than anything, Ryan, just to write about home. And, and, and yet I know if I wrote about my childhood, it, it wouldn't be interesting. No one would want to watch it. It's just not all that appealing. But Season two, like, he sells insurance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> here's, here's Kate Winslet selling life insurance policies <laughs> around town. Um, how interesting is that going to be? Um, so it was, it was it's like, you know, how do I write about home while also having the show be entertaining? And, and, and I remember having a conversation with a police buddy on the East Coast. Um, and he was telling me about his early experiences as an officer at a little town. And, and he was saying it was basically a dozen officers. We had one detective who was in charge of like kind of all the crimes that had to be investigated. And we had a station that was, a, it used to be a train station and we converted it into the police station. So you just start to like accumulate these little nuggets of things that you kind of, I always say like you put them in a piggy bank, it's one penny at a time. And over months you look at the piggy bank and you've got a little bit of money in there. And I, I, I feel like that's how I've always written is, it starts with a character that I like. In, in this case, Mayor, I was interested. I, I didn't know much about her. And then it was the police station idea. And then it was another character. And you just start to put the pieces together. And then you kind of step back and you realize, well, I've, I've got a little bit of money now. I've got to, I can go spend some of this. And, um, and so that's usually how it happens. It's just like it's the accumulation of these ideas and um, just even scenes or lines of dialogue that start to accumulate. And then after a while, the aggregate of all that is, is a lot. And so that's how it started. And then I, so I, I think I had the story in my head for like, you know, eight months before, but the, I, I see the problem I had Ryan with the mayor. And I've said this before, and it was really the hiccup is like, how do you end the show? That was my big issue. Cause I I've seen enough of these mystery shows to know that if you don't get the ending, right, then everyone goes, well, that was a waste of six, seven, ten hours. And so I was just so convinced that 
unless we could land the plane. And, ha- you know, and uh, again, what does that mean? In my mind, it meant it had to be surprising, but it also had to be incredibly emotional. And so that was tricky. And so I hesitated to start writing it. And then one day I was just thinking about all the characters I had laid out, all the, all the pennies in the piggy bank. And I suddenly was like... This is a spoiler alert warning for Mayor of Easttown. If you have not watched it, as much as we don't want you to turn off the podcast, please come back and listen to this after you've watched it. Or if you have no interest, keep listening. But this is a Mayor of Easttown spoiler alert. And then one day I was just thinking about all the characters I had laid out, all the all the pennies in the piggy bank. And I suddenly was like, oh, it's, it, you know, the spoiler alert, like, oh, it's Ryan. It's Lori's, it's Lori's son, you know, because that would mirror Mayor's life. It would be incredibly emotional. It would be, in terms of the themes of the show, incredibly resonant. Um, and so then it was like, okay, now I can write the show. So once I knew where it ended, then I felt confident that all those pieces I could string out over, over the course of, of, of the seven hours. So when you landed on Ryan, what was that moment like for you? Like, were you at the office or were you, were you like, oh, wait, I, I figured it out? Or you're like, yeah. wait, would that work? Or, you know, like, what was that I, part I, of it? I, I think it's the two emotions. It's like, oh, my God, I've gotten it. And then you and then you got it. So after, like, the initial excitement, you're like, okay, wait, but is that, like, I got to see the pieces again. Like, am I going to be able to make the pieces fit? But I think there's, like, it was definitely a revelation. There's a light bulb moment where you go, oh, my God, that's it. That's, that's what it is. But then you have to step back and go, okay, now looking at it practically, how do I weave that idea into the story I've laid out? So it's excitement at first, and then, and then it's like, okay, now I got to get to work. How do I make that work? But I was convinced once I landed on that, emotionally, I was pretty confident it would work. Because it's, it's just in terms of the themes of the show and, and the friendship between these two women, I felt like it was going to make an impact. So it was funny reading people kind of talk about Mayor going like, oh, what a great idea. Like he had us guessing every week. It's this old school drama. And you're like, yeah, it felt like 2016. It was like so old school, you know, like, oh, my God, we have a show that comes out once a week and we're trying to figure out what happened. Um, And it was a less weird Twin Peaks because Twin Peaks just decided, like, I don't even know if anybody cares anymore. We're just going to make this weirder and weirder. But back then, I mean, that blew us away when we were in high school. We're like, why can't you believe that TV show like this exists? Yep. So I'm going to do this. I, this isn't like a critique or anything because yeah. I'm not that much of an asshole. But do you go, OK, like I'm going to give you a little guy, Pierce, who kind of is like the bait and switch, because anybody who's reading a bar by himself, uh, reading a book in a bar by himself is a weirdo. So you're like, I'm going to mess with the audience here. I'm going to let you think it's the dad. I'm going to let you think it's the cousin. And then we're going to bring in James McCardle, who plays Deacon uh, Mark Burton, who, by yeah. the way, that guy's an absolute scene stealer. Every great. time he's on camera, I'm like, who is this guy? And how come he's not in everything? Because he's, he's unbelievable great. how good yeah. he, is. he is. So you have to be kind of, whether you come up with the Ryan as the murderer at the end, you know, I don't know if you're outlining it in reverse, or if you're writing it yeah. in reverse, or if you're going, okay, but now that I know what I'm doing, because you're the creator, how do I mess with everybody every single week? So I guess yeah. that's not as much of a question as it is observation. Like, how do you balance? Like, I'm just fucking with people every single week. And I can't make it obvious either, because then it's like the payoff isn't there. Exactly. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's true. I think that's, that's really the, that's how you have to lay it out. And it seems like a bit of a cheat, but I think the trick is like, 
how do you how do you give them how do you have them leaning one way in a way that's believable and organic and isn't isn't feeling like a cheat even though in many ways it is a cheat and so it has to be i think the i think the trick we tried to do is always have it feel grounded in in believable character moments so even when you were trying to have an audience look this way when they should be looking this way, that at least when they were looking this way, it was believable that they could be looking that way, if that makes sense. Like that even when it went to Deacon Mark, it didn't feel like it was, oh, this is ridiculous that you went, well, he's kind of fucking weird and he's, he's a little strange and maybe he did do this. And so that every time you had them leaning a certain way, it, you know, in their heart of hearts, they probably knew they shouldn't be leaning that way. But there was a part of there was a slow, small piece of them that was that was loud enough saying, well, maybe it actually could be. And I think that was the trick is every motivation had to be earned and believable so that even the most you know, seasoned audience members would go, well, we're only in episode three. It can't be the priest that that there was at least a voice in their head going, well, but they could always like then dismiss them and then he could come back around. And so it was always like, how do you make every suspect a believable suspect. And then Guy Pierce was obviously a red herring that we had in there. He's just hanging out. He's a writer, but he's like, he's not, he hasn't been successful. Women are all over him. He's into mayor again, as a bartender, when you read a book at a bar by yourself, like that's all sorts of red flags, uh, especially that late in the night. And I do think it was a little divey for a guy to be reading some sort of novel, but I'll, I'll let that one go. Uh, uh, but see, no, all this stuff, because you're right. Like it couldn't just be, oh, it's the priest, you know, like whatever. Because then the audience, even though the Ryan part felt like, oh, that was a little misleading. It's like, well, that's the yeah. whole point. And what I thought was genius in the way you did it is that, you know, it was kind of the no wasted scenes rule where the open of learning who Mare is, is perfect. The old yeah. couple that calls, hey, it's yep. this thing with the shed. And then you've forgotten about the shed until now the shed is important again. Yes. And, you know, then, of course, reverse engineer, like me thinking of, Oh, okay. Well, that's why the lunch scene happens with Ryan. So we can see this side of his anger, even though it's totally excusable because of what uh, motivated yes. his action. But then I thought back, cause I watched the pilot again last night. When you show Ryan doing homework on a Friday night, right after mayor leaves, I was like, look, I would have never, op- not in a million years. I'm not that smart. I didn't pick yep. it up in the pilot, but then I was yep. like, let me go back and see the first time we're introduced to Ryan. Did you make that just a little, off on purpose yes. that you wanted him doing something homework on a Friday. He's like, I don't want to fall behind. And you're like, what a psycho. Like, totally. Take us through that. Well, that was the idea. So that was our idea there. And again, you know, it was, you had to be so uh, cautious with, and, and that was the trick of the edit is how much of Ryan do we see? But, but, you know, I think what I love about that observation is exactly what you said, which if you went back and watched it, here's a kid that at the time it feels completely innocuous. But if you were to go back and watch it and go, oh, here's a kid that he always wants to be on the homework on because he never wants to cause any trouble because he knows that, that that these things have happened in the past with his parents and he had to get through them and he's gotten through them, but he doesn't want to be the cause of any issues in the family because there's enough issues to deal with and he doesn't want to be the one that causes any uh, issues with his parents. So it's a very subtle hint, but it's enough of a hint that if you were to go and watch it again, you go, oh, this is a kid that's like really cognizant of the family issues that have happened in the past and doesn't want to be the cause of any pain. And so it was a clue we put there intentionally. Obviously, at the time, it feels like a total throwaway line. But if you were to go back and watch it again, but but that's the trick is how do you plant these seeds that 
because you never want the audience to feed. So you want them to be surprised, but never tricked. And that is always a balancing act is how do you make these moments feel earned? So when you get to the ending, it's, it's surprising and yet emotional and not like if you blinked an episode two, it was the guy at the bar behind Guy Pierce. You missed them. Like, like I, that was the one thing I really wanted to avoid where the audience would be surprised by that, but it wouldn't resonate in any way. So we had to have both of those things. And, and that was a part of the edit. How do we have enough of Ryan, but not too much of Ryan, you know? How much did you ever have a moment like where you changed your mind where you're like, no, it's going to be this person? No, I never changed the killer. There were definitely tons of moments, Ryan, along the way where we were going, well, in this episode, we can actually be leaning into this one a bit more than there was in the script or, or we can be, everyone actually suspects this person. I mean, the one that I never understood, but I cannot tell you how many people texted me about it. It was Siobhan. Like so many people said, I think it's Siobhan. I think it's Mayor's daughter. She's the one that did it. And that was really never a part of the scripts. We really never aimed to have Siobhan as a suspect, but that was one that people really latched onto. Yeah, I, she was just so nice. It would have been so disappointing because Siobhan had so yeah. many different things that she was trying to balance. And I think you yeah. always felt like, you know, it's the group of characters you root for, you're rooting against, you're always rooting for her. So I think yeah. that probably, you know, it's a weird thing about um, at least television. I remember somebody explaining to me, it's like people lose all day when they come home, they want to win. Yeah. And that was probably the kind of TV we grew up with yes. um, where like, you know, we like sad songs, but we don't like sad movies or TV shows, you know, <laughs> like, so it's like, give me like, oh, Siobhan's got, you know, she's a high school kid going through all these yeah. different things. And she's had this awful family dynamic, but she's kind of yeah. strong throughout it. So, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. A couple of things here. Um, I haven't even talked about Kate Winslet yet, who Chris Ryan, one of my coworkers here at Ringer compared her to the Miami Heat LeBron James version that we got in this show, which I thought was perfect because she's just, she nails the accent, which is very delicate. It's not easy to do. I know you've been asked about that a million times, so we don't have to worry about it. Um, you know, she physically plays the role perfectly and she's pissed off at everybody, but she's important. And I don't know, like take me through the, the first moment when she was like, okay, I'm in. And then I imagine it's even better than you thought it would be when she got it on, on screen. Well, yes. And yes. I mean, I think, it was crazy with, I mean, it's crazy with Kate because this process, which ne let me just say never, ever, ever happens. We sent Kate the scripts. So I, I think I, I had written two episodes. We sent, you know, we said, oh, this would be great. You know, I don't, I don't know if Kate would even be interested. You know, I, I'm, I'm sure you know some of this stuff about actors getting them to read stuff. And it's just a whole, whole process. Are they going to read it? Do they have time to read it? Are they available? There's so many you know, variables that go into an actor signing on to do something. And we sent it to Kate. And within like two days, she'd read the script and we were on a call and I remember talking to her and she was at her house and she was like, I read the two scripts and I love it and I want to do it. And it was, a sh I mean, totally shocking because she had no idea where the story went. She didn't know what the ending was. And for an actor like Kate to sign on after reading two scripts, and also I'm not Steve Zalian. It's not like I'd won nine Oscars where there would be some expectation of the quality of these scripts, you know, continuing. Um, so a testament to Kate's conviction and desire to play this woman. And yeah, and then to trans, you know, to, to have an actor like you were talking about Bale in that scene, to have an actor who can take what you write and then just enhance it, amplify it, elevate it in ways that that's what Kate was always able to do. I mean, I think about the therapy scenes and they're just absolutely, I mean, the one scene that always stands out to me is just being absolutely incredible is when she goes and visits her son's or her grandson's doctor and is talking about his diagnosis. And she finally lets out that, that she wasn't able to figure out her own son and her performance in that scene. It, I remember 
I remember editing it and being like, we're just going to stay on her the whole time because it's so powerful. This woman just put up such a front and you just see a glimmer of the regret and the lost hope that she had with her own shot. And it's just absolutely heartbreaking. And that's what a great actor can do. Take lines that on the page may work to a certain extent, but make them into something where every, every viewer is able to feel that pain and empathize. And Mayor's a tough character to like at times. And to have that scene, I felt like in that moment, the audience was on her side just because they were able to experience that pain and regret of losing a child and maybe feeling like I didn't do enough or I could have done more. I was like, I think we're, I think we're good because even if she makes bad decisions, we've gotten these, all these people invested in her character arc in a way that, you know, is, is, I don't think we're going to lose the audience now. And, and so she's just, she's just incredible. And also I would say this about Kate, like is just the loveliest, kindest person to everybody. So you know, we've all worked with people. Some of them are nicer than others, but Kate is, you know, from top to bottom, every crew member, just the loveliest person, kind to everybody, is the hardest working person I've worked with. So it was a dream come true for me. Now, for those that also, I probably should have put this in the intro. Um, Brad also wrote The Way Back with Ben Affleck. So this is, all right, my guess is after watching The Way Back and you're a bat, and for people that don't understand Brad, Brad is a basketball guy. His family's a basketball family. Did you play in college? No, no. I was, okay. I played in Your high brother? school. Well, right. Yes. Yeah, okay. so my brother went to Notre Dame and played at Notre Dame. Right. And, and that's the one that's a coach now, correct? He's a coach at Delaware now. Yes. Right. Okay. Yes. All right. Yep. Yep. So one of my biggest pet peeves as a sports guy is like immediately going, like I always, I joked about they should just, Hollywood should just pay me like a million bucks a year and I'll show up every time there's a sports scene. I'll say, actually, you run from first base to second base, not second base to first. I'll be like, all right, I'm out of here. I've seen shots where it's edited, the guy's sliding into second base the wrong way. Or whenever there's a jailhouse scene where they're lifting and you go, put more than 95 pounds on the bar, it's jail. Okay, so I, it's it always drives you crazy. So Kate, character is a big time local legend high school basketball player she never touches a ball right and ben in the way back i don't remember no. seeing him ever touch a basketball so have yeah. you dealt with like two of the biggest actor actresses of their time in basketball roles yeah. somewhat ben certainly more than kate in this one where yeah. you were like actually let's not have you touch a basketball because it might not look good <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say Ben, I mean, for first of all, I think he's wonderful in the move. His performance is incredible. He's awesome in it. He's awesome. He's, right. he's awesome. He's not the most athletic guy. And so and so in the script, we actually had a scene that that we were trying to do. And what we were gonna do, Rise do, I think they did it in the movie called I Tanya, where they did um Which is a great movie, it? by the way. Yeah, it's and great. Um face just, replacement. Yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. So that they had the skaters, but, but you can make it look like Margot and, 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 and so we were going to have a scene where he goes and plays a pickup game and you get to see what a great player he was in his prime. And we were going to do the face replacement. So we were going to do it, but I don't think Ben would have been out there actually doing the playing. Cause I, I, he's, you know, I think I, I wasn't there, but I believe he worked out with Gavin and the idea was we'd get someone who's, you know, and also we wanted to have it be a guy that played at such a high level where, so any, anybody like you who watched the movie that really has an expertise in the sport would go like, wow, this guy can really ball. And so it would have been asking a lot of Ben because we wanted the scene to be about this guy kind of like really taking over. But listen, I had the same allergy you have, which is if either do it well or don't do it at all. And I think we landed in the place of like, 
let's not do it at all. You know, we actually shot a version of the, of the game where Kate makes the shot and we were going to have it playing on like an inflatable screen. And it was actually pretty good, but the, but just the episode constraints with time and things, we said, you know what, we'll get the idea of the girls talking and, and we'll cut it out. So we did actually shoot that with Kate. It, it wasn't Kate playing, but we recruited like a local uh, college player to come in and play Kate who looked enough like Kate, we could possibly pass it off. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I felt like in the way back, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, because I had heard like Ben isn't super athletic, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, if, you, if you're if you not, you can't then fake it in your 40s. You either get that no. muscle movement down as a young totally. kid or, or you don't. So, and honestly, things have worked out for Ben. So I think he's probably okay with it. Uh, <laughs> all right. Last thought he's here. Doing fine. Yeah, I think he's okay. Because my buddies back in Boston were like, well, dude, he's a Cambridge kid. What'd you think? And I'm like, all right, relax. Everybody like, he, I probably still trade places with him, even though if it's jumper might, might not, uh, might not be tight enough. So what's up with the season two stuff? Because this is, this is a different challenge. Like what, what can you tell us about a possible season two here? Mayor. You know, it's it's a tricky one, right? Listen, I, you know, I love Mayor and Helen and Siobhan. Like, I love these characters so much. I would love to do it. I think the trick was like, how do you do it well? And then I think the big issue you know, that I have in terms of cracking a story is like, what happens to Mayor personally? I, I, I was convinced and I am convinced, of, you know, we put her through such emotional trauma in season one and she kind of arrived at this place where she was able to confront the thing that's been haunting her. And and my, and my worry is like, are you ever going to be able to recreate that emotion or even come close to it? And if not, is, is it still worth doing? Is there a different story that's worth telling? So, I mean, you know, never say never. I don't know what the idea is. I'd love to tell another, another season of Mayor because I love her as a character and the chance to work with Kate again would be a dream. I just, I wish I had the great idea. If you have one, let me know. I'd, I'd love to hear I it. I don't know, man. man, this one, this because <laughs> people are going to be so pissed off at you if it's not yes. just as good and not saying that you can't make a season two that's just as good. But, you know, I don't I know. I know. Uh, I know. It's it's hard, right? I mean, that's that's the big that's the well, you, is, can you a, create stuff. It's a flamethrower character. Like I was writing down the notes because, you know, sometimes like I'll I'll joke when I'm looking at stuff and you're like, all right, are you layering this too hard? And it's like, OK, cool. We'll make a really simple then. Are you going to watch, yeah. you know, because we're talking about somebody whose son commits suicide. You know, she's. She's a mess personally. Her ex-husband, which I love that move of having him live in the lot behind with a new <laughs> wife. You know, the daughter is going through her changes as a high school kid into college. Um, and you're also, you know, the sheriff, basically. And then, you know, I mean, you you layer it so hard. Yep. Um, but I, I don't like I like that there were no layups with her, that they were all complicated layerings. But you you almost emptied the toolbox in a way because you made her so good that that's what would, if I were you, obviously I'm, I'm not telling you, I, I, I don't want to, you know, have a successful TV show, but that would scare the <laughs> shit out of me a little bit. Cause you're like, all right, what do I, what do I do where it's not like she's time traveling and now I've lost everybody. Right. That, but it's so true though. It's exactly what you said. It's like, you sort of emptied the toolbox a little bit. Right. And how do you bring, how do you bring back another set of personal emotional circumstances that doesn't feel um, artificial. That's the big thing. It's like, oh yeah, you could bring in something and go like, oh, oh, the best friend we never told you about has just died. And you get, it's like, yeah, but that's not real. It's also not the nuanced version of a story we want. And so that's the thing is if we could do it in a way that was organic 
and emotional, great. But if it's just going to be, oh, we're conjuring a story just because we have a chance to, I know I wouldn't do that. And I know Kate absolutely would not want to do it. So that's the trick. And listen, I hope we can get there one day. I hope I can, I can wake up one day and have that, have that same moment I had with Ryan and go, oh, there's the story. It's been sitting here the whole time, but I don't know what that is yet. That's why people, as great as The Sopranos is, like, it's great. This is not a criticism, but people have no idea how awesome a tool it was to be like, all right, this cousin's out of jail, season three. <laughs> and it's like, oh, you know, there had to be no investment in the character because <laughs> you just believe that there was a cousin that everybody loved. And all of a sudden, Buscemi's in the show and it's believable. <laughs> and so all these people were getting out of jail or like back in a town and you're like, all right, we'll kill him. And then there's another uncle that was in jail. And you're just like, what a great mechanism for any showrunner. So. Oh, totally. Totally right. Totally right. I mean, that was genius. And they had, I mean, and they yeah. were always able to reinvent the story and, and still keep it emotional, entertaining. And listen, I give like, I think about those shows that were out in the past, all the episodes you had to produce each year. I'm like, that is overwhelming to me. I did seven and it almost killed me. Think about those seasons. What's it like doing episodes. Right. And so like for people that don't maybe understand, like, look, the showrunner will write the pilot, he writes the finale, and then they'll rewrite most of the episodes, but you still have yeah. a staff of writers that are writing everything. Yeah. So I just yeah. sharing this with people that maybe don't sure. know that this wasn't really the case. Like this was all on you. What was that like? You know, I think in this case, you know, I don't know that I would do it again. Um, you know, maybe with Mayor, I would look into it just because like if we ever did a season of Mayor, it was, I don't want to say it was never easy. It was always hard, but I felt like I could write the characters in a way because I grew up there and I knew some of the voices. And so it was, it was almost, I don't want to say easier than bringing in a writing team and having to coach them on, Oh, this is where I grew up. This is what they sound like. This is what it was almost like, you know what, to have to go through that kind of education of the place would almost just be easier for me to do it. Um, and I think it, listen, it was incredibly hard, but I think what it was on set, it was really helpful in that, that I had such a knowledge of the story that if we ever had to change something, Ryan, I was able to be like, okay, but that's, here's the ripple effect of this change. It's, it's not just in episode one that we have to change. Now in episode six, this is what's going to happen. So, so I think it was helpful that I, was, that I created the whole story. And so whenever there was an issue on set, something that needed to be changed, I had such a, um, a, a knowledge of the whole story and I had written every word of every episode that I could say, well, if you just change that one thing, here's the domino effect. And if we're going to change it, here's what we have to do. We have to layer in these things. And um, so I think it was, it was helpful that I did it. It was a lot of work. I don't know that I would necessarily jump into that. I would love to have other people giving me ideas, but in this case, it was, it was a fun one. Everybody that watched it loved it. I mean, rare do you have that kind of approval rating on creative stuff anymore, man. So you should yeah. feel proud about that. And uh, my Thank favorite you. part is probably just getting to talk to the guy behind Out of the Furnace because I, I used to just get pissed at my friends. I'd be like, you haven't seen it? And be like, oh, you know, I got a 52. Like, shut up. Like, just watch it. It's Christian Bale. It's Casey Affleck. Woody Harrelson. You're going to love it. And you, uh, that first opening scene in Out of the Furnace, I'm not going to spoil any more than we already have. You're like, yeah. okay. I'm in. And it was a random thing for me because I was like, how do I not know about this? It's Christian Bale. I was like, done. I bought yep. it on a flight. And like, I think as soon as I landed, I was just texting everybody being like, what the hell? Uh, <laughs> well, hey, Brad, watching it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks for taking the time to do this, too. We're huge fans and, you know, love the basketball part of it, too. So I hope everybody that um, hasn't seen it will come back and, and listen to this part of behind uh, as we give you that big spoiler alert. All right. So thanks, man. Appreciate it, Ryan. This episode is brought to you by Modelo. Modelo knows it's not about whether you win or lose. It's about cheering louder, traveling further. It's about showing up 
no matter what. Because you are a fighter and Modelo is your reward. An ice-cold reward. Rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Modelo, the mark of a fighter. Shop delivery or pickup options near you at ordermodelo.com. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Imports, Chicago, Illinois. Before we want to get to life advice, uh, because it actually kind of piggybacks what we did last week. We started talking about moving to Europe for a dollar. Saruti, who looked into Italy, and I got to tell you, he had the tweet of the weekend, is Italy back? Nobody's asking that question. Um, all right, Saruti, they, they beat England on PKs. There's a bunch of stuff that we can get to. I was taking notes. I was excited. I made sure I was home in time to watch it. I'm, I'm finding myself, as I get older, a little bit more drawn to these events. If you can't appreciate the pageantry and effort and the emotion part of this, uh, and I regret being a shithead 20-year-old who didn't. I just, honestly, I got more mad at soccer guy than the game itself. And I, there's something else that's dawned on me, too. As much as it sucks when there isn't as much scoring, like I wonder, hey, would we like soccer more if it were like more 5-3 games and all that kind of stuff? There's something to be said of when you're down 1-0, as impossible as it may feel to score a goal, knowing that you're just a goal away from tying the whole thing up. Like maybe those of us that are a little too American, a little too outdated, you don't realize like actually that's that's kind of awesome in a way where mm-hmm. every other sport you can kind of tell like unless it's a back and forth game you don't have as good of as, as good of a chance and look even though England scored immediately um, the amount of pressure that Italy put on them it just felt like it was inevitable and they felt like the more class side I would say throughout much of the game Steve that's well put and I and I will say really quickly before that I, I love that after every major soccer thing. There's always, and it's always on Twitter, everyone wants to change the sport. Now I saw like McAfee and no disrespect to McAfee, but it's like, hey, why don't we make the goal bigger? Or people are like, oh, why don't you, PK is like, why don't they just keep playing until someone scores a goal? It's like, well, every single time we try to change the rules of the game, it's the most popular sport in the world, man. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, they're they're not concerned with like whether or not they're going to Americanize the sport. So I think we need to stop doing that after every single tournament. But by the way, I was, when I was younger, I was a big, let's make the goal twice as make wide the size yeah i used to have a theory of like two goalies with huge paddles and make the go but i knew i was doing that just to be a dick so that's that's why so yeah. go ahead it's like they're doing just fine without you it's okay um <laughs> but no it was a great i mean it wasn't actually a great game on the field but there was a ton of drama right and you know the whole it's coming home versus it's coming rome thing was really cool and this it's played in wembley in london so everyone's saying is that a benefit to, to the english squad or is it or is it something that's going to you know, creep and come back to haunt them, which it kind of did, I think, a little bit. Um, but the worst thing that happened to England was going up 1-0 in, in the second minute of the game because they basically closed up shop and decided to play defense for 88 minutes and then the entire extra time. And that's just not... I mean, I, listen, I think Italy were the better team throughout the tournament. They beat more teams. They beat Belgium. Uh, they beat Spain. Uh, the England, penalty, beat, the Sterling penalty against Denmark was a joke, too. So Oh, it was terrible. I mean, but I'll, but listen, you got to credit them because they were the better team. They were the better yeah. team. They no, should have won fine. that game, but the penalty was totally BS. But I would say overall, Italy fully deserved that. And it's crazy because Italy, just what, in the 2018, so those three years ago, really, the last World Cup, they reached their lowest point in the history of that nation as a soccer country. They missed the World Cup, which for Italy is absolutely ridiculous. It should never happen. And they were at their lowest point. And so for the next major tournament, for them to actually win the freaking Euro in this weird year and then win the final against England in London, that's uh, that goes up there. That's one of the biggest accomplishments, really, of probably this entire national team that the Italian national team has ever had. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. couple thoughts here. Um, what I don't like, and maybe that's just non-soccer Twitter, is England scores. It's like, oh, this is over. And you're like, well, how, what do you mean it's over? Like, what are you talking about? And 
as much as people could like, I think the uneducated part of it's like, oh, well, the other team's up and then you just kick it around for 90 minutes. Like that's a little harder to play keep away for 90 minutes than it is, say, 10 minutes, especially when it's a lesser, uh, lesser team. Right. When we're talking about talent wise, you could mm-hmm. see it happening earlier in the tournament. But I, I don't know. I mean, I watched a bunch of games. It's a great game to watch. As far as, you know, if you have something else you're working on, like I'm working on my draft profiles, but I would have it on all the time. So I felt like I was like, hey, here I am again watching soccer. But I just I just enjoyed it. So here's here's a question I had for you, because. Um, Frederico there when he got hurt at the end, is he the best offensive player on Italy? Chiesa? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he. He certainly was in this tournament. He's really young. He plays for Juventus, which is probably the biggest team in Italy. Uh, but he wasn't starting games earlier in the season. Like he came off the bench a lot, but he was a complete spark. You know, he was a firecracker and was unbelievable offensively and is really kind of a one man show. He's a lot like uh, that guy. I'm trying to think of like an example in the NBA, but he's all offense, but never passes. Like he's just a one on one player in a lot of ways. So he's not going to like put a lot of balls in the box or help everybody else out. But he could score a goal on his own as good as anybody in the tournament. And this was kind of his coming out party. But when they lost him, they lost him obviously to injury in the final, and they lost Leonardo Spinazzola against uh, Belgium. He tore his Achilles. Those, you could argue, are their two most important players the entire tournament. So, like, again, for Italy to win the tournament at the end, minus maybe their two most important players, yeah, it was in PKs, and PKs do kind of suck, and it's a little bit of a crapshoot. Uh, that was it, was, it was just wild that they were able to overcome that because they're not, England is way more talented than Italy is, but Italy just played better as a team. They're a much better team. They seem to care a lot more. The camaraderie was there. And uh, I, it was awesome to see. Now, England's a younger team, too. So you could say that, you know, maybe they'll be back and this will kind of be the beginning of, of a new cycle, which it could be. But I just come out of this like, obviously, I'm biased. But this is it was just an impressive accomplishment from this Italian team. That is something I'll never forget. All right. So when. Um, what is it again? Kaseya, you said Chiesa, which uh, Chiesa, translates right, to church. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Federico Chiesa. There you go. Sign me up. Let me know His when you guys His dad meet. actually was a baller, too. Uh, played like 20 years ago. I think he won a World Cup, I want to say. All right. So Chiesa, Chiesa goes down, and I thought, okay, he's flopping, right? And then mm-hmm. I thought at some point, too, and you can sit there and say, like, that's not what he's saying. These guys are speaking English most of the time because they're yelling at the ref. Yep. So even the for, the more foreign clubs or whatever, obviously not England and Italy in this case, like whenever you're watching the guys yell at each other, it looks like a lot of times they're actually speaking English. And Pickford, the, the goalkeeper for England, who's just a psychopath, the whole he screams <laughs> he at everybody the whole time. And I know goalies are a bit like chefs and drummers and rock bands where they're always they always feel like they're a little off because of the job that they have. Um, but and he's terrific, by the way. So it's not like, you know, it's not coming from nowhere as, as a goalkeeper, but he's yelling at everybody the whole fucking game. And then he stands over Kiesa and he's like, hey, get up. And he's saying, I can't feel my leg. I said, I think what he said to him. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, dude, like you can't feel your leg. Meanwhile, they had all this momentum. And I'm thinking, okay, but him stopping time here. Mm-hmm. I'm like, is this actually taking away from Italy's momentum? And then you're like, oh, he actually can't walk. Like he wasn't, he wasn't flopping whatsoever. So in the moment I'm going, all right, he's doing what everybody else is doing. And it's almost like you're selling the next call. You know, you'll go down and you roll around forever. And then the ball comes near and you pop up and the name are, and you look good again. But I guess it's part of it is, is selling the next call. And yes, all that stuff really frustrates me. Like the Sterling penalty going back to the Denmark game. Like that's, that's an altering, altering call where there's really, even if we're talking about touchdowns and inbounds, out of bounds reviews on certain basketball plays, when you're talking about that magnitude of a call, like that's the part of it that seems really frustrating. Even when they reviewed the Sterling penalty and you're just like, Jesus, you like, you guys yeah. reviewed it and you still gave it to them. Um, the PKs themselves, 
Some people love it. Some people hate. It. I don't know what you're supposed to do when it's soccer and it's going to take like you want these guys playing for four hours. Like that doesn't seem to make a ton of sense to me. But I know that a lot of the traditionalists hate this. Your thoughts? I mean, the traditionalists being Americans. Yeah, they they hate it. I, it's not the it's not a Americans hate just, it. I think Americans don't understand why you would play 120 minutes and all of a sudden, you know, I saw some guy with that be like if you finished a, a football game, an NFL game and just had a field goal kicking contest. Well, it's like, first off. Field goal kicking no. is such a unique and weird part of the game that that's not at all a good analogy to use. Yeah, it's um, terrible. But again, Put if you Twitter. delete your account, it, it, it's very, very good. If, if you played 120 minutes, the, the amount of running that you do and how taxing that is on your body. And in this tournament, because of COVID and all these different things, they had five subs where they usually have three. Um, so you argued already they had, they had fresher legs than they, than they would have in the past. There's really you can't just keep going. You can't. That's how guys are going to start getting hurt. Like, that's just really dangerous for the players. And then you can say, oh, and you know, just keep adding subs and adding subs. Or I've heard a few people say, hey, why don't you take like a guy off every 10 minutes? You just take a guy off. So you play like nine on nine or an eight on eight. But like, imagine that'd be like playing one on one basketball hoops, like full court. Like, that doesn't make any sense. It totally changes the game. It actually makes the guys run way more. And there just isn't a perfect way to end it. And it's a cruel like for the neutral. Yeah. PKs is amazing. It's the I, I say like. You know, if you miss a PK for a big national in a big national tournament, I mean, there are guys that have not gotten over that and their careers have been ruined because of it, because you just can't come back from that mentally. It's so difficult. I mean, there have got, been guys that have been vilified in their home country because they've done they've missed the penalty in a big spot. Um, so it is it's an imperfect way to finish a game. But there's really no like what other situation in sports is there more drama than a penalty kick shootout where you're one of five guys. Um, and if you, chances are, if you miss, then you're going to blow it for your team. So I, I, I get it's not perfect, but I, I don't really have an answer for what the other alternative would be. So I'm okay with it. Yeah, I was totally okay with it. I like it. I don't understand how you're going to keep running around. I mean, we could sit there and Americanize everything again, where it's like, you're right. I mean, it, we're, we've been so, so obsessed with change in sports these last few years. And I would argue some of the change that we've forced through has made shit worse. And the pageantry part of this, like I'm telling you, why would you want to? Why would you want to change a bunch of that stuff? Um, the other great thing about penalty kicks is that, for those who don't know, Danny Cannell, uh, my former co-host, was convinced he was like the only guy that knew how to stop him, even though he never played no, soccer. So no, he was convinced it? that no, he was the guy that was like, "There's no way it should be that hard to stop penalty kicks." And you're like, "Do you have any idea what you're talking about?" And he was like, "And then at the College Football Hall of Fame show that we did." I went to kick some penalties against him and I've never played soccer except for when I was on the maroon team when I was five. So I have no skills whatsoever. I just bombed to like over the goal and classic Canal fashion was like, yeah, see, I told you. And I go, dude, I don't know what I'm doing. And then I beat him in the throwing contest of a football. And then he said that I didn't. So that pissed him off that the rest of the out. day. So, I mean, Danny used to have these theories. He was convinced he was like the only guy that saw how to defend penalty kicks and no one else in the world had ever figured it out and that it shouldn't be that hard to defend when I'm amazed they don't all go in. Wasn't that Van Pelt too? Didn't Van Pelt? I mean, he, he's six seven, so actually he might be a decent keeper uh, if he had. He says done six, it six life, but, but I think uh, six six. He identifies me, as six six. Sorry, excuse me. That's my bad. I should I should I should know better than that. Uh, I think both those guys were like, yeah, why? How, like, why isn't why isn't there a better percentage on on saves? I mean, basically, what happens? There are two there are two things that that really happen. You have you have penalty takers like Jorginho who actually missed, um, who they will slowly walk up to the ball. Right, uh, Pogba does this too, and it's 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 it's. It's just kind of like a game of chicken, really, where you are waiting for the, the keeper to move either one way or the other, and then you slot it the other way. And they're not even really kicking it with that much force or that much skill. 
they're just playing a game of chicken. And if the goalkeeper like even hints at going left, they're going to go right. That could either work a lot and make you look like a hero or it really makes you look like an idiot. And in, in Jorginho, uh, his case, he missed his and it didn't look that great. Or they're the guys that are just absolute skillers and go, I'm going to put it upper 90 and just bang this thing in like Harry Maguire, who broke the camera in the back of the net, which was actually pretty sick. Um, but one of the things that that the that the England coach Gareth Southgate is getting crushed for today, which I've never seen before. And I was talking to my friends. I don't know if this is ever like a thing, but he made a couple of subs at, at the very end of extra time. So like the 119th yeah. minute where he brought in two guys cold off the bench that had not kicked the ball at all to come on because they were offensive players to kick a penalty. And so much of penalty taking is being in rhythm and having confidence and less about skill in that situation that I just I just thought that was a huge mistake. I really did. And both those guys missed the penalty. All three substitutions that Gareth Southgate made, all three of those guys missed their penalty and they ended up losing obviously by one kick. So it made a big deal. So for me, it's less about, I would have left the guy who might not have been a, a great penalty taker. I would have left him in because he's at least warmed up and he's got like, you know, his, you know, the, the adrenaline is he's there. Yeah, versus two guys who, yeah, are probably really skilled, but haven't even kicked the ball other than like the pregame training. So I, I thought that was a huge miss by Southgate. Fair point. Yeah, I mean, the last kid who came in looked like he was 15 years old and he just got... Yeah, he was, I, I think he's 19, yeah. I, I could also understand too, like all those offensive players that England hadn't brought in and everybody's like, look how deep this team is. Um, I could tell immediately why you like Grealish so much when Sarudi's awesome. never yeah. had... <laughs> Sarudi's never had any hesitation of just admiring the, the football skill and... Attractiveness Hair, of some of the international thighs. guys. Yeah, I mean, Grealish Short comes shorts. in and people start to freak out. And then you actually, if you watched him play, like his, he's off. Awesome. You could you can see some stuff with his movement and his quickness and his control where you were like, oh, okay, this is why everybody has his jersey and they're wondering why he's into the game. All right, so we'll end it with this: the whole coming home thing. Does it count for all of it? Like, does it count for the World Cup too? Is it counts yeah. for this? Like, so it's just we're still waiting on that coming home. Like, I felt like this is the most momentum I saw behind the coming home thing. But again, that's us, at least me on the outside, maybe not paying as much attention to it. I felt like that caught a lot of momentum and then everybody was tweeting it. I was like, wait, a minute, so does that mean you just got kind of like say it's coming home? You can't do it for the club stuff, right? No. Well, the whole point is that and this is why a lot of people don't like England is because they you you could argue, I guess the game was invented in England. I mean, who knows? Like, I'm sure people were kicking balls anywhere around the world at various degrees in human history and various times in human history. Um, but they kind of claim that they are the home of football, right? And the, the thing is, that I made this analogy, I think, on the last pod, is like they act like they're this incredible nation that has all this, like the, the Cowboys or the Yankees with all these titles. And they've really only won one World Cup in 1966. And I think the reason behind it's coming home is twofold. It's that they they believe they invented the game. And two... Uh, that there's a song that goes behind it too that a lot of the fans chant. And this sort of generation of English players is probably their golden generation. Is their, now, you know, 10, 15 years ago with like Wayne Rooney and Theo Walcott and guys like that, they thought the same thing but ended up not working out. But this sure. generation of English players are really freaking good. Like they're very, I would argue, other than France, they're probably the second most talented team in the world. Um, so I think they, the fans and the media sort of were like, this is our time. And listen, they only played, I think, one away game the entire tournament. And it was the final was in London. So I think that's where the whole it's coming home thing happened. I love the, the play on. I mean, Benucci, who scores the game tying goal, uh, he went into the camera right after and screamed, it's coming to Rome, which is amazing. I uh, love the play on words there. Uh, but I think a lot of a lot of like neutral fans around the world don't like England just because they think they're too cocky. I'm one of those guys. I think you guys like you haven't won anything. So why are you talking so much shit? Yeah, who knows who invented any of this stuff, really? Because there was probably some people kicking stuff around there for for a while, and then you know the anthem kicks up, and you realize like my country tis tis of thee is is like the first sample of all mm -hmm. time, perhaps. So who knows? All right, so there you go. 
Good stuff. Let's get to life advice. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. You know what I hate? Hate is after lunch, there's all this time before dinner. I hate it. So I'm always like, do I do this? It's like, you should. Gain season. Throw in a little something extra. An appetizer that just starts hours before dinner. It just gets so frustrating when there aren't great options. That's where Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps come in. Available in your choice of ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for that afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Food buddies. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Looking for a better way to watch live TV? Stream your favorite sports and shows on over 95 live channels with Hulu Plus Live TV. Get access to Hulu's entire streaming library, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, all in one plan. Start your free trial of Hulu Plus Live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. It's time for Life Advice, brought to you by V8. People have trouble changing routines because they try for big results first, but switching up your routine in small ways can add up over time. Try skipping that sugary coffee shop drink and swap in a V8 Plus Energy for plant-powered pick-me-up with caffeine from tea and no added sugar. Okay, Life Advice. Before we get to that, we had um, a close friend checked in on the the biking incident. Um Oh, you know what else I want to address too here a little bit? Because we had a bunch of accountants uh, check in after I did my 2008 to-do list. And there was a couple comments about, um, you know, you can't believe you thought you were broke. You're making hundred bucks an hour. The ESPN rate for fill-ins was a hundred dollar an hour that you were on the air. So if I only had one shift in two weeks, guess how much Ryan made for two weeks? $300. <laughs> and then people were like, wait, so I like you guys, some of you guys, how fucking bored are some of you? That as soon as anyone says something, it's like, well, wait a minute. Well, how can I figure out a way that he might not have been telling the truth? Why would I tell you? Why would I lie about an hourly from 2006? Why would I lie about um, a 2008 tax bill? So then <laughs> the other thing was like, how come you had to pay that much in taxes? Because I, was, um, I wasn't a full-time employee. That's it. I wasn't a full-time employee. So I should have put more aside, which is what I did. But I should have even more aside. And uh, that's why I got whacked the first time I saved any money in my life. I was like, wait, this... This, this game isn't a lot of fun. Um, but the more entertaining portion of the feedback was my friend who was like, you know what you need to do when somebody flips you off and you're kind of like eye to eye, whether in this case, bike, cyclists, car, a little more dangerous. But when the guy's looking at you and he's giving the finger, letting you have it, my friend likes to do this thing where he looks back at the other person and does a horrified face like they're about to hit something else. And he says it works almost every time. <laughs> so That's like, awesome. So if the biker who's <laughs> turned around giving you a four-second middle finger, you know, he's looking back at you, not seeing exactly everything in front of him the entire time, you would be behind him. And instead of getting mad, now you got to be really quick. My friend has developed this skill, so now it's an instinct. Um, so I don't expect everybody to pick this up automatically. I didn't even think of it. I've never done it. But he was like, what you do is then you look and be like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Like you point as if he's about to drive into a truck 
And then the guy will turn and freak out because he thinks like, oh my God. And then he goes, honestly, it kind of relieves the tension and everybody, like that guy feels like an idiot. So then he's like, ah, I kind of lost that transaction. And then you see him do something where you feel like you won and you didn't even have to yell at the guy. So to point to somebody being like, oh my gosh, you're going to crash, you know, cyclists out there, give it a shot. Okay. Life advice, rr at gmail.com. Hey, long time listener. Love the show. Nothing picks me up on a long day. Some life advice. Okay. All right, here we go. So my buddy, I guess, I hope we've changed the names here. Yeah, I think he did. I don't know. I don't know if he did. Fuck it. We're just doing it. All right. So my buddy Wes was with me on Martha's Vineyard, Chillmark, not Egertown, for the fourth. He lives in a small town in Idaho and has been texting with this girl. Let's call her Susie to make things easier. For a few weeks, lining up a date for when he would be back in Idaho and feeling good about it. Important to note, there really aren't many options in his small town, and he's been on a cold streak. Uh-oh, Susie was visiting his small town in Idaho while he was on the vineyard and had some of our other friends that were gonna, also going to be in Idaho to visit another friend of ours who lives there. Uh, okay, one of our other friends, Turner, who was visiting Idaho from New York City, uh, is the kind of guy we just don't trust to be a team player. So Wes wisely called him before he flew to Idaho and says, hey, man, I get that this is a bit weird, but you're probably going to meet Susie. The thing is, I'm excited about her. I've been texting. I would appreciate it if you don't pursue her. All right, we know where this is going. Um, since I think there might be a future there, our guy Turner, who was going to be in Idaho while Wes was on Martha's Vineyard, these guys like to travel, man. Um, Turner said, yeah, cool, I'll comply. So Turner ended up going home with Susie over 4th of July weekend. My other friend uh, that was at the bar there where they were flirting and tried really hard to talk Turner out of it. In fairness to Turner, the girl was clearly into him and very cute, but it doesn't sound like he ever really tried to do what West asked him. If anything, uh, actively pursued the girl. Uh, Wes is obviously pissed. Turner's acting like it's no big deal, showing zero remorse and even extended his trip for another day to hook up with the girl. So we're all going to Croatia. <laughs> Look at these guys. Oh, my God. What, what kind of business are nice. you guys into? We're all going to Croatia for one of the other guys' bachelor party in a few weeks. Wes planned the whole thing, which was a lot of work, and wants us to do something to send a message to Turner, who hooked up with Susie, uh, that this is not okay and he needs to stop being such a jerk. One of the ideas contemplated is to disinvite Turner from the party in Croatia. That seems a bit extreme. Turner is also suspected to be hooking up with Wes's ex-girlfriend and now lives in New York. Granted, Wes dumped her three years ago. But if that's true, it seems pretty messed up. We have no hard proof of this, but in general, Turner tends to do a lot of selfish stuff. We're all fed up with it. That said, he's a core guy in our college crew of eight um, that is really close. We all generally like him. He's fun, but I'm starting to question why we have him in the crew. So what can we do to send a message without disinviting him from the bachelor party? How do we get through this? Stop being such a jerk. Okay, so let's start with this. Um, here we go. Turner is the guy that Susie ended up hooking up with. Wes is the one that was upset. Um, Susie doesn't belong to Wes. All right. So Wes needs to get over that. You can be upset. You cannot like it. It can bother you. Those are all things, but like you got to kind of get over it. And I mean, look, you tell a guy, Hey, there's going to be this cute girl that I'm interested in, but I haven't really ever, you know, spent any time with her. And can you not hook up with her when then she wants to hook up with the guy that gets out there? Like every guy's going to be like, Hey, sorry, dude, you know, sorry, Wes. So Wes can be upset, but you don't, like there's a level to how upset you can be on this one. So if now you're saying it's a pattern and there's some other stuff that Turner's done, you know, this is where it gets a little trickier because you know, even though you guys are pretty young or wait a minute, 32. Okay. All right. So you're kind of getting to that age, but, uh, look, I'll just, I'll tell you for example, like we have one of the guys that was in the group of friends that just couldn't stop hooking up with everybody else's girlfriend. It was like, 
his thing. I don't know if he got off on it or what. I think I've referenced this before. And he also like there'd be a weird deal where if somebody was dating somebody and then they broke up, he would like befriend the girl. And then all of us would hear about like, oh, yeah, they started hooking up again. It was almost like he it really was weird. Like he almost got off on the idea that he would be hooking up with somebody else's girlfriend as opposed to just going out and meeting your own fucking girls. Like, why would you? And I look, I, I ended up not liking him, um, which is not a huge surprise, but it just was a really shitty pattern. So eventually that stuff's going to catch up with you here. Unless like in this case, Turner's the coolest guy in the group, then maybe you guys are just more accepting of it all. You know, like that can happen too. It's like, Hey, we have this one bully in our friend group, but he's the coolest out of all of us. So we keep putting up with it all the time to disinvite him from Croatia because of a suspected hookup with an ex from three years ago that was dumped by your friend. And because he hooked up with a girl in Idaho who the other guy had never really spent any time with that's excessive. All right. That's really excessive. Now, if you want to, you can call him out on all this shit. If it is festering and you feel like you have more evidence and he is a really selfish guy, you could do a friend intervention here. I don't know how that's going to go. I mean, I don't know. Like you guys, would he fight you? I don't know. I mean, that would be kind of weird. Take on seven different guys. But I think disinviting him from Croatia uh, is excessive. But if it's that big of a deal and all you guys are talking about him behind his back about this, this development, about this personality trait, then call him on it. Like, why the hell is everybody so afraid to just talk to each other about it? Talk to them about it. Call them out. I mean, look, it's going to be really weird. If there was something that I did that seven of my friends decided like, hey, Priscilla, we got to talk to you about this. Like, unless you're one of those incredibly detached people, like emotionally, you're the least sensitive person ever. You know, like sometimes I envy those people. It's like, yeah, whatever, dude, I'm just going to keep it moving. But most people aren't really like that. And I don't know if that's guys like this, but I think most of us walking around as seven of our closest friends. And in this case, like your core guys pulled you aside and said, hey, what's your deal with this? Like, why do you keep doing this? Um, you would think that's going to have an impact. So it might all be better from that point on. But to take Turner's side here, if like you guys started really giving me a hard time because another guy from the friend group who had never been with the girl texted me ahead of time was like, Hey, don't, don't hang out with her. Even though she wanted to hang out with me and I'm attracted to her and she's attracted to me. Like, I don't need your permission slip, man. So I would push back on that one. Unless, as you said, you're hinting at that this might be a pattern of behavior. So if it is a pattern of behavior and you guys feel like you have real evidence against him, then ask him like, Hey, get it over with. Maybe you'll be stronger after the fact. Maybe he'll stop doing it. Maybe everybody stop getting their feelings hurt. But if the best evidence you have of this is him in Idaho with old Susie, Susie from, you know, Boise, then you don't, well, she said small town. Um, you don't really have much of an argument there, man. She's an adult. Our guy, our guy Turner's an adult and hopefully the rest of you guys are too. Kyle. I agree. Um, they are probably too old to bring boxing gloves to the backyard or do a quick shadow boxing session or whatever, just to air it all out. So I think talking is probably the the right way to do it, but it does sound like also this one guy might be, in the words of Charlie Murphy, a habitual line stepper, <laughs> and maybe he's just flirting with the line and stepping over it for various different dudes. So yeah, I think just fucking talking about it, and maybe do it before you guys get drunk, and it becomes weird. Yeah, um, that's a good. Call. Maybe don't do it on the trip either. Like maybe just like actually do it in normal times and don't make the stakes so high that you're not gonna be able to enjoy the trip unless you get this thing off your chest that everybody's been upset about for, I don't know, years at this point. Yeah. Don't do so. it drunk. I would, I would definitely agree with that part. Although sometimes it can't, it can only come out when you're drinking, but or you know. loosened up. I don't know. It's a, it's a t fine line. Uh, here's the other thing. Like our emailer could be 
There's times where like one person from the core group is super mad about a behavior trait of one of the other core guys. And then he asks around to the other core guys. It's like, hey, do you does this bother you guys? And then everybody else might be like, not really. The Idaho thing. I'm sorry. Like, if I just. You know. Does anybody care about Susie's thoughts in all of this? That's what I'm that's what I'm worried about. Uh, Saruti. I was going to say, it, it kind of reminds me of the guy that's late all the time in that I, I wonder if this dude Turner is just, he just wants the attention. Like he likes the attention of this girl. He likes the attention of him hooking up with, you know, the ex-girlfriends, if that's like an actual pattern. Um, I almost feel like this is like a more thing about his insecurity or lack of security than it is anything else. But my other thing was what you just said, Ryan, how many of the other guys actually care about this? This might just be West. <laughs> you know, did West send the email? Is he the guy? Is he like the guy, the subject of the email? No. No, we get a different guy. Who sent the so email. It could have been like a friend asking for a friend thing when it's actually not. But because if it's not West, then I guess you could say, all right, yeah, it is. It is a bigger deal within the friend group. But if it's just West, I'd be like, I don't know, man, how many other people are actually that mad about this? Well, they did reference the ex-girlfriend from New York City who had been dumped by the other core guy for three years ago. Um, I, you know, that one I need I need to know a little bit more about. It. I'm not even saying like we don't need to do a big follow up on all this kind of stuff. But if it's if that many guys are bothered by it. And there's like, yeah, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Like, honestly, like when it happened with our guy, none of us handled it the right way. Like the guy should have got his ass kicked once, you know, and no one did. You feel like that would have <laughs> solved the problem? No, I don't think it would have. <laughs> I don't think it would have. I just think the guy had like a weird deal where he, you were like, wait, he did it again. Wait, he did it again. I mean, it was just, it went on and on and on. And I don't know, whatever. Like I. It kind of it kind of sucked for me because I told him off eventually, and then, um, then I kind of was like losing other guys that were closer to him, even though I was in the right and he was in the wrong. And then there was another moment where, like, I was like, "Screw it! I don't want to lose all the other friends because of this." So I was like, "All right, you know, bury the hatchet, bury the hatchet." And look, deep down, everybody knew I had not buried the hatchet, and we ran into each other, and I was actually like fired up because it was like a big group of friends that I hadn't seen in forever. And we were all drinking. It was getting a little late. And I was like, hey, let's hit up some other place. And they're like, yeah, yeah, great call, great call. And I went to the bathroom and everybody left. And then I was like, what the hell? And everybody's gone. And then the guys texted me in the morning and they were like, we got out of there because he was afraid that like as the night progressed that maybe the hatchet was going to resurface. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? That's fair. Ouch. I was like, that's a, Ouch. I was like, you guys could have handled a little bit better than that and treating me like some dude that you didn't want to see the rest of the night. But. They were like, as soon as you left, he was like, can we please get out of here? Can we please get out of here? Because he's going to end up snapping as the, as the night progresses. I do kind of like that he was afraid of you, at least. At least that makes it sting less. Yeah. I, I, I was like, hey, I was more fired because I was working all the time. I was driving back and forth from, from Connecticut uh, all constantly. So I wasn't around at all. And it was like, oh, we just randomly ran into each other. I mean, you know, that, look, that shit sucks. It was still 10 years after it had happened to me. And, you know, it's the first thing you do. You look at the other guy and you're like, I'm not thinking about anything other than this. And he's thinking that he's looking <laughs> at me being like, Rasilla's not thinking about anything other than what happened. You know, 10 and he looks way stronger than 10 years. Yeah. Ago. Right. Now he's like, <laughs> dudes, dudes think he's, he's like before we knew he was a loose cannon when he was skinnier, but now we're, now he's actually, but anyway, we don't need to get into that because there's another friend that's so mad that he's like, I'm so, I hate that everybody in the country thinks you're such a badass. I was like, all right, well, you know what? Why don't you worry about other fucking things? All right. Uh, we're just giving out life advice to old school dudes yeah. from college right now, left and right. We're just I assume like that the, guy's not in the circle anymore, right? I, you don't talk to that guy. I don't fucking care. I, yeah. He's going to hear it. He's going to hear it. Yeah, good. There you go. What's up?
I called his house after I found out and his father wouldn't put him on the phone. So honestly, like, you know, be a fucking man about stuff. I'd when I was dad. I was only 21 and the dad like started giving me a hard time on the phone. I was like, put him on the phone. I know he's there. He's like, we're not taking your calls right now. I was like, you know what? A man would address this. And I hung up or something like that. I don't know. It was, it was, I get it. Look, it's your son. You don't, you're not going to take my side on anything, but it was, uh, it was bullshit. Like my big thing is if you do screw up, like you should at least, all right, Hey, yeah, I did something wrong. Now we're going to talk about it, but that is, uh, it's not what happened. And you know, it's only been 20 plus years. So it sounds like I've had closure. (laughs) (laughs) On minute seven. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'm the wrong guy to be giving out any advice on anything. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, let's do one a little bit more straightforward as, uh, as this one, (laughs) this one got a little, little too personal. See, maybe we do a dinner bill. I think there was a dinner bill here. Oh, no, wait. It's West Texas Jake. He checked in. Oh, no. Yeah. 5'9", 170. Great size. 255 power clean. Uh, He still runs the 40 under 4.6. It's incredible. Hey, man, totally forgot to keep you updated about all the stuff that's happened over the last two years. Uh, The first year after the interviews, I student taught at my alma mater where I taught seventh grade Texas history and coached football for free. That season, we went 11 and, excuse me, zero and 11. Okay. Mm. 11 and zero would have been better. Uh, they did not do that. They went zero and 11. It was one of the hardest things I've done in sports. Coach baseball until COVID hit, then took up golf during quarantine. Year two, I taught U.S. history at the high school, coached middle school and high school football, basketball and track, accepted a varsity football assistant job coaching running backs at 6A high school after multiple job offers to consider. Got a girlfriend six months ago, and she's a great one. Look at this. Would love to call in again sometime soon. Let's have him. We don't do this. I don't want to. I don't think I want to expand this out to the call and stuff that we used to do in the ESPN pod. But he gave us a phone number here, Saruti. I think we need to have him on, and I think we need to kind of just blast his resume out there. He's probably the only person I'm ever going to do this for because I'd like of all the athletic directors at the college level and all the different people that listen to the podcast. Maybe we can at least do a resume hookup here because. He just was such a solid guy. It'd be horrible yeah. if somebody like sends us another email like, actually, West Texas Jake sucks, dude. He's actually a guy that does go after people's girlfriends. Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, but it sounds like he's got a great girlfriend here. And and let's let's do a bigger update with him at some point, Srudy. So put that in the comments. Yeah. No, I, he had like a bit of a nomad thing there, though. Like Owen, Owen 11 football coach. Then he went to baseball, back to running back coach. Then he got into golf. Like, that's a pretty good... It's a pretty good run there. And then he's got an awesome girlfriend now. It's cool. I think he did more stuff in that sentence than I've done in like 10 years, which was yeah. <laughs> I was trying to keep up. I was like, Jesus, that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> All right. This is this is a really long post interviews part of the pod. But you know what? We'll keep it rolling here. OK, what's up? Huge fan of the pod. 170. It's a good size. Here's Can't the deal. Relate. Yep. <laughs> A few weekends ago, my girlfriend and I both had to leave town and we couldn't take our five-month-old puppy with us. By the way, did you see that story about the dogs being returned now after the pandemic is over? Yeah. Yuck. My wife is bummed about that. Yeah. Again, people ask me why I don't get a dog and I'm like, I don't want to do that to the dog. You know? And then I'd see people do that. Like people, that's, I'm not even the biggest dog guy and that headline bummed me out. And, you know, probably got got my day back together all right so anyway so uh we're part of a pretty big friend group and we know another couple let's call them samson and delilah Ooh, little 
the real ones know. Is that biblical? Let's not call them that. Um, uh, let's just, okay, so there we go. That's the couple. They have a dog of their own, uh, has watched other people's dogs in the past. We're not super close to them, but they've always been really cool and very friendly. After explaining our situation, they agreed to watch our dog, which is a huge relief to us as we didn't want to board them. A, it's pretty expensive. B, we pretty much, uh, we much preferred that people we knew were taking care of them. As a way of saying thank you, we offered to take them out to a nice, Neapolitan pizza spot for some food and drinks, which is not only a way to express our gratitude, but a great chance to get to know another couple better and pave the way for more outings. Flash forward to the night in question. There was an hour long wait for a table when my girlfriend and I arrived. So we texted the other couple to meet us at a dive bar down the street. Dive bar was very chill vibes. Well, super cheap drink specials. But as we get to the bar entrance, we notice that Samson and Delilah aren't sitting at the dive bar we selected, but the expensive cocktail bar next door already working on round number one. We're a little confused. We shrug it off, sit down and join them. We all end up drinking two rounds each by the time our table at the restaurant is ready. We call for the check and Delilah and I both go for our cards at the same time. As I'm taking mine out, she stops, puts her back and the server takes my card. After leaving 20% tip, the bill came to 135 Surprisingly, Samson and Delilah start thanking us for treating them to the drinks. Um, wait a minute, surprisingly. My girlfriend and I share a confused look as we didn't figure this to be part of the dinner we're treating them to, especially since Delilah was reaching for her card as well. But honestly, it's too weird to stop them from thanking us then to ask for half the bill so we shuffle off to the restaurant. Well, right as we sit down, Delilah orders top-shelf vodka martini to keep her company while she's per- uh, perusing the wine menu. As this is a fucking pizza place, my girlfriend select, uh, suggests we all split one of the many bottles of wines that are reasonably priced, but Delilah shrugs off and decides uh, on one of only the expensive options, the one of the only expensive options on the list. Meanwhile, on the other side of the table, I'm looking to draft beer list for my semblance of something reasonably affordable as I'm starting to calculate all the money being transferred from the Paris vacation fund. My girlfriend and I have settled aside that's going straight into the Grey Goose martinis and overpriced uh, wine. That's when Samson leans over, replaces my draft beer list with a cocktail list and says, you pick my cocktail, I'll pick yours, which is just so outrageous, uh, an outrageous thing for an adult to do. I was speechless. It keeps going. We agree on two stars, two pizzas for dinner. The server comes over to take the order. Delilah starts improvising like Miles Davis and kind of blue and orders additional <laughs> apps and side dishes on top of the agreed upon order. By this point, I'm blankly staring off in the middle distance. No longer concerned about the money, but rather how my faith in the goodness of decency of humanity is being shattered before my eyes. The last straw comes as our table is clear. The server asks if anyone wants dessert. Obviously, Delilah wants dessert. She orders some $16 chocolate mousse, has two bites, and finally retires for the evening. All told, girlfriend and I paid $400 for what would have been a very, what we thought was going to be a very casual and simple night out. To say thank you to this couple. We both do pretty well money-wise. We're not rich by any means, but we're already pretty taken back by what we felt was excessive ordering on this other couple's part. Honestly, I think I'd rather take my chances letting my dog roam free in the streets and do it again. So my question is, should we have intervened at some point? Maybe force the issue of splitting pre-order drinks. Do we warn other dog owners? Um, or is this not as crazy as we both assumed it to be? Any advice is appreciated. Thanks a lot. And if Kyle ever wants a dog watch for us, we'll treat him to dinner and he can order whatever the hell he wants. Okay. All right. All right. Um, this is two different cultures colliding here. All right. That's, that's what this is. Cause there's a bunch of words in this, this email that jump out to me. Now, should they have done what they did over 400 bucks? I think most of the audience is listening to this being like, that's absurd. They watched the dog and they just went for it. Clearly they have a way. I don't think they did it to hammer your bill on purpose. I think that's just the way they live. Like they saw a dive bar. They saw a nice bar. They weren't like, hey, let's go to the nice one because they're paying. It's because that's the way they roll. They order top shelf stuff because that's the way. I don't think this is some deal where you're seeing some scene from like Veep and somebody gets whacked with the bill because they're doing it on purpose, right? I don't think that's at all the case. My guess uh, to the emailer and and your wife or girlfriend here, um, 
I don't want you to be bummed out about this, but I there's a bunch of stuff in here that tells me you're a bit on the cheap side. All right? I know that stings a little, and you like the podcast, and maybe you're never going to listen to it again, but you say, hey, there's a dive bar that has super cheap drink specials, okay? Um, after leaving a 20% tip, the bill came to 135 all right? Delilah orders top shelf vodka martini. The you pick my cocktail, I'll pick yours thing is definitely weird. Um, I'm looking at draft beer list. You mentioned the Paris Vacation Fund. You are very responsible with your money to the point where, again, cheap isn't the right word, but you are not somebody. My guess would be you're not you're not online shopping all the time. So two different cultures collided here where some people, when they're out and about, like they thought they were just going to get treated out to some nice night and you say that both you and your girlfriend do pretty well so they probably know that you do pretty well if you're among this this group of friends that's one of the first things anybody asked about like hey what's that guy up to what's his deal okay cool so they know you're doing pretty well and they're thinking like 400 on a night out in the town when they watch your dog like they're not doing this i don't believe to screw with you but this isn't the way you roll because a bunch of different references that you make so you don't need to go tell on them to everybody else because by the way there's a good chance there's somebody in the friend group that's closer with them than they are to you. So when you do that, you know, when people talk shit about each other, it used to always make me laugh when there were the ex-basketball coaches at ESPN that would talk shit about me. And I'd be like, you're talking shit about me to like my best friends. And then when I get called on it, they'd be like, hey, do we have a problem? I'd be like, yeah, we have a fucking problem. Like you don't like me. And now I choose to not like you. And I'm not going to fake it. Where you fake it, I'm not going to fake it. So we're good. Be like, oh, no, Ryan, that's not cool. No, 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 no. We're not friends, and that's fine. That's it. So I would warn you of that. Here's what you do. Don't ever watch your dog again. Don't ever tell him you're going to take him out. All right? So it was a $400 lesson, which is a really expensive one. It sucks. It's too much to watch your puppy. I hope you don't feel like I'm being too negative towards you, but I can tell based on the structure of this story and five or six different references where you're talking about like things being reasonable versus not reasonable, all that stuff. You just don't like to spend the way this couple likes to spend. So they don't think they're doing this to mess with you. And now you learned a lesson. And granted, one that was far more expensive than you want it to be. But as far as the intervening halfway through the dinner, look, salute to whoever that is with those kinds of stones. All right. I can be confrontational. I don't know that I ever be confrontational enough to the point where I'd be like, uh, excuse me. We agreed on two apps, a house wine, and then two pizzas. And that's it. And the dessert thing sucks. I'm with you like classic, whatever, but I don't think they were trying to rack up your bill just to mess with you. So Kyle, I know like, Hey, there's another tier financially that's listening to this being like, at some point you have to stop them again. Build a statue to whoever it is that just starts telling everybody what they can and can't order in this kind of setting. I know there's a bunch of badasses out there that would say, I'd never let that happen. Okay, fine, cool. You and your girlfriend meeting a new couple and you want to cut them off in the middle of it. Congrats to you. Make up shirts that you did it because very few people would ever do something like that. I think that's the best life advice you've ever given because I am this guy. This guy is me. I was mortified as you were reading this. And then as you were talking, it all made sense. And yeah, it's right. It's just different. Like I've been to dinner with Bill Simmons and I've been to dinner with my fucking dad and we're just different people. We order different ways. We got drinks at home type shit, you know? So yeah, it makes sense. And I think it was just really good to keep that in mind. And I think you fucking nailed it. Good job. So Rudy, would you have wow. told them to stop ordering stuff? No, no. I would have sat there and judged in silence <laughs> like a real man. Uh, <laughs> but hold on. I-, I can't believe you guys are both going with this because you know, I, I'm still so I'm I'm 32. 
And, you know, my in-laws will take my wife, Maddie and I out to dinner, right? At times. And I'm very aware of like not ordering expensive shit on the menu. And by the way, they're doing fine. Like, it's not like a thing where I'm weird. like, they're fine. They're both, they're both, I mean, one of them is retired. The other one's a successful realtor. It's not like a money thing, but so I you married for to- money. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> Looking forward to uh, retiring and being a full-time dog dad at some point, but no, I, but I just feel like, shouldn't there be some sort of self-awareness for you? Like, first off, it's not like they helped you put in like, you know, an addition on your house. Like you, it, it was a very <laughs> simple thing that you did for them. So it's not like a 400 hour pizza night is an insane bill. I, that's a hundred bucks tops. So I guess I'm against both you guys here. I'm just surprised that I wouldn't say anything, but I think it's absolutely asinine that they would, that they would ball out like that for such a simple favor and not feel any like weirdness about that. I agree, but he's just saying they didn't do it on purpose. That's all I'm saying. Like, yeah, like yeah. don't fucking go out with them again. But like, you know, they're not doing it on purpose. They, like, if you brought it up, they'd cheap. be like, I don't what? think those other people are cheap, though. I'm not, I, I think I would push back on them being cheap. I would be I don't feel like I'm very cheap and I would be annoyed by that. That's just that seems like an unreasonable four hundred dollars for a pizza night to thank someone for watching your dog is very unreasonable. OK, but there comes a time where you're successful enough to like, you know, I don't want to say money's never an issue because money's always an issue no matter kind of who you are, unless you're like at this like elite level that everybody sends links about on on Forbes. Um, but I mean, there are people that order and keep track of everything mentally. And then there's people that just don't. And I know that I've been both. I, I remember being at dinner parties with buddies and I'd be like horrified because then some guys looked at it as like, oh, we're just going to whack it up 10 different ways with credit cards. And then it, dudes would be like ordering their second Jack and Coke before they got their first one because they were like, well, cool, I'll have seven Jack and Cokes and then other guys will have two Coors Lights and I'll have one. And again, we were all like right out of college. So you're kind of like, you seriously want to be yeah. wired that way. So again, cheap's not the right word, but frugal, like he's definitely, if he's mentioning that, hey, this is a really good dive bar with great drink specials, like he's actually thinking about those things, impacting the decision of where he wants to go out, where the other couple has never once in their lives ever worried about what the drink specials were. So we're talking about two completely different approaches. If he's already thinking about a vacation fund to Paris, then these people are very budget conscious there's a ton of restraint. You know, these are all good things that they have, but you can't hang with the people. Cause look, I've again, being a guy for a long time, there are, I've, I've been on the extreme side of dating people where I'm like, wait, how, like, what do you think? You know, like what you think I'm at that level? You know what I mean? Like almost testing me out to see what I'd be willing to pay for. And you're like, look, I, I maybe if I could afford that, it's a fucking stupid thing to do, and I'm not going to buy another bottle for for you and your friends just to like prove a point or something like that. And that's a, that's a, like a whole another different thing because there's also been times I put that ATM card in the machine, and you're like, please, please have some cash in there. And then I think one time I even pretended we were out with a bunch of buddies, and I was like, dude, something's wrong with my card. Pending charges are tricky. Yeah, like you want to know what's wrong with your cards? There's no money in there, and then you just turn around. And you're like, hey, Darren, can I get forty bucks for me? Thanks. Thank God to Darren. I think I still own that 40 bucks. But yeah, uh, I I don't know. I mean, I guess Saruti's still more on the emailer side. I'm not anti the emailer. I'm just saying that his no. approach to this is very different than the people that and just don't go. Don't ever, ever go out with him again. No, that that's sucks. that's what I'm saying. You're, yeah. I don't think I wouldn't stop them midway through the meal and be a psycho about it. But I think they're also allowed to be pissed off that this kind of t- took the turn that it did. And they end up spending way more than they probably should have or the other couple even deserve based on what they did for them. That's all I'm saying. All right. 
Life Advice was brought to you by V8. Small changes can add up to big progress over time. When you see it start to work, you feel motivated to do more. Like grabbing a V8, reach for a plant-powered pick-me-up like V8 Plus Energy, which has steady energy from tea, plus a combined serving of fruits and vegetables and vitamins B and C. Okay, that was uh, that was a lot of fun. Do a lot of different stuff today. I hope you guys enjoy it. Please subscribe, rate, review, spread the word about the podcast. And um, we're fired up, man. Fired up. We got a bunch of other cool things that we've taped and putting together here, just trying to map it all out. As probably for August, as things may slow down there, at least for a couple of weeks. So we'll be back uh, on Thursday. And Bill and I on Wednesday night. So there you go. Bonus Game 4 stuff. And also credit to Kyle Crichton and Steve Cerruti behind the glass. 